Joe Biden says it may be unconstitutional, but he's pushing ahead anyway with an eviction moratorium. Is that a good idea? We bring in a great guest to talk about it and so much more on this Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Hey guys, welcome back to Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Uh, today we've got a great show for you today uh, with me and Vince and actually a special guest. Uh, Vince, take it away. Uh, joining us today is a great journalist, a guy I've been following for a long time. And you should follow him on Twitter as well. And also at his website called inquiremore.com. It is Zed Jelani. Zed, thank you so much for helping us do this today. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, I, uh, I want to kick off with both of you. Um, just get your reaction to the latest news that we're getting on the eviction moratorium. This is um, the decision by the federal government. It's been going on for much of the pandemic to suspend um, the ability for landlords to evict their tenants for their failure to pay rent. It was obviously an emergency measure designed to help people as uh, we watch the economy get rocked during the pandemic. Um, it just expired at the end of July. And in the process, it was challenged before the Supreme Court. And ultimately, the court seemed to signal really loudly uh, that it was fundamentally unconstitutional, but they would let it expire at the end of July. That started a tug of war between Democrats in the House and the White House, uh, at where they both were saying that the other is responsible for extending this uh, eviction moratorium. And finally, yesterday, uh, Joe Biden admitting, well, he's consulted with constitutional scholars, the majority of whom say that this probably wouldn't pass constitutional, constitutional muster for the CDC to keep pushing this thing on. Uh, but they ended up deciding to do it anyway and let the chips fall where they may. Zed, um, how do you feel about this? these announcements and where this is headed now? Yeah, I mean, it seems like an example of, uh, you know, government sort of mismanaging the relations with itself uh, in that when the moratorium was expiring, it seemed like we had kind of a war of words between different sides, right? Uh, the White House basically said, hey, there's nothing we can do about it. Courts have ruled that Congress has to reauthorize this. Uh, you go to Pelosi and Pelosi saying, hey, we just heard about that. I think the White House and the CDC should do something. It's not really up to us to kind of kick the can down the road. Um, and at one point, I think she also blamed the Republicans for it expiring, even though the Democrats hold the majority of the House of Representatives. And if they wanted to have an actual st uh, statute or law on a moratorium, they could pass one. Uh, and eventually, I think what happened was to kind of the, the left wing of the party you know, raised, made a lot of noise about it. And I think that to accommodate them and to, to address the issue, the Biden, you know, White House, the administration kind of issued a, a revised moratorium, which probably also will get struck down by the courts, um, but it'll buy people maybe a little bit of time and maybe a month or, or two or something like that. Um, as far as the policy goes, it's interesting because in December and in March, the Congress actually appropriated a bunch of money, like over $40 billion uh to deal with renters assistance right and that assistance money is supposed to be preventing people from being foreclosed on or just in a bad way because they you know they can't get work or something during the pandemic and so on and so forth but only a small amount of that money has actually made it into people's hands i think something like probably less than one fifth or one sixth of it have actually gotten to the actual renters and part of the reason for that is that you know basically states and localities have to make their own programs and then they have to go out and find people and actually, you know, talk to landlords, negotiate with landlords and their tenants to actually apply for the program and get, get yeah. the money. Uh, and and it's, it's wild because that should be the solution. The best solution to this is that there's people who are falling behind. 
uh, you know, work out some terms with their with their landlord, give them a little bit of money to to float them for a while to help them until they get up to speed, and then go for that. Because really, the eviction moratorium, you know, it's not a it's not something you can do for a very long period of time. Um, partly because the reality is a lot of the people who are renting out uh, as landlords are themselves middle class people. Uh, so if they have people who are falling behind in rent and they can't really evict them and bring in someone new, uh, it's going to put them in a very bad spot, kind of a tight spot, right? Right. Um, so the moratorium was always kind of an emergency measure implemented by actually the former administration. Uh, but by now, we would hope that there would be some kind of stable like rent assistance program for people who are truly in need. And otherwise, we'd be getting back to normal. Uh, I think the fact that we're going to a moratorium that will probably be struck down almost, you know, as soon as it works its way through the courts suggests that the government is not really tackling this problem in a serious way. And they haven't like efficiently and effectively distributed uh, money for those people who are really, who, I, who again, I think are, there are some people who are really in need. Jason, what do you think? Um, there's, uh, believe it or not, there's a lot of things that I agree with that, that Zaid said. Um, in the sense that, you know, you know, I believe in, in runner's assistance, and I think it should have been doled out a lot more efficiently um, <clears throat> by a lot of the states. Um, I do think the eviction moratorium right now in the summertime, because we're going to see, I think, a lot of people going out and, you know, uh, finding work and, and, you know, having more opportunities to pay their rent um in the fall or at least that's that's the belief is that the economy is going to change a little bit in the fall women won't have to be home because the people the majority of the people who are in trouble um with rent and and could actually face uh an eviction moratorium i think it's 56 percent was the estimate uh, of those people will be women um because a lot of them are single mothers or single parents who have to be home with their children um you know during virtual school and during the summertime so once uh schools open up you know hopefully in the fall they'll stay open that will have more opportunities uh to go back to work um and and gain an income and be able to pay their rent um and this this moratorium that came from the cdc i think it lasts until october 3rd so you know what what zade was saying about it um lasting maybe a month you know that's it only really is going to last two months anyway so I, I think you know i think the biden administration recognizes that so even if it does get struck down in the courts um they'll they'll buy themselves some time politically it helps them yeah. with the progressive wing of the party which you know has had some criticisms for the biden administration so this was you know in many ways um kind of a, a, a political stopgap for them and also to buy them time until the fall. That's, I think, what they wanted, even if this gets struck down in the courts. They wanted to buy themselves some time. And also, I, I think it's good because it does buy people some time um, before the fall and when I think things are going to change. But I do think um, that it was in some ways, you know, I think it was necessary to do this. Um, I think, you know, we could not risk, you know, the different estimates of 6 million people being evicted from their homes. Um, that, that could have really been a problem for a lot of people. And I, and I think we, th there was something that needed to be done and the Biden administration dragged their feet because they didn't want to get into, a, you know, into a political uh, spat right now. And I think mm -hmm. that that was kind of, 
you know, their calculus. But um, luckily, I, I think from my perspective, you know, there were people that were saying, you have to make a decision one way or another. You have right. to actually say something. And, and that's what happened. Now, we can argue about the merits of it, of course, but it, it does strike me as remarkable that the president made the argument to the to the Congress that he wasn't allowed to do this. The courts have said that it wasn't constitutional. And then yesterday in his remarks before the press, he once again reiterated that the majority of constitutional scholars that he's consulted with has said this action would be unconstitutional, but they're going to do it anyway. You had both Congresswoman Maxine Waters and Congresswoman Cory Bush urging him to go ahead and pull the trigger anyway, regardless of what the courts say and saying, whatever, just get sued. Um, that's a pretty amazing thing to hear out of a president. And I guess regardless of party affiliation, like it, like if the courts can't even stop the president from taking actions, like who can? Sorry, yeah. I just, uh, Zed, Zed yeah. I'll let you go ahead and jump I'll in on that first. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because I think that people in government do this uh, less transparently, like all the time. Like, for instance, you will have legis- you'll have legislatures that will like pass a law on, ab- on an abortion or something on abortion restrictions. And like they understand that it's probably going to be ruled unconstitutional, but they're, they're doing it because they one, they want to like test the, the limits in the courts. And two is like, you know, it's politics. Uh, but they don't necessarily say that up front, right? They don't like say, okay, okay, we're passing an unconstitutional law or like unconstitutional, <laughs> or we're just kind of doing it. But Biden was almost like completely honest about it. Biden was like, yeah, the courts have ruled a certain way. We really can't do this, but uh, we just want to buy people some time. And we, you know, we, we're going to go ahead and do this. And I guess we'll have to stop when the court rules again. Oh my um, goodness. It was like incredibly honest on Biden's part, honestly, the way that he presented it. Uh, because normally people in government are very like, you know, they, they, they kind of play dumb about what they're doing. And even if they understand the court will actually knock it down. So, yeah, no, I, I agree 100 percent again with that. I think this happens all the time. Uh, the original Muslim ban comes to mind. I mean, there was no way even in the Trump administration where anybody thought that that was going to fly. You know, like somebody had to be like you know, this isn't going to work with, we have this thing called the constitution and that's not going to work, but uh, they put it out there anyway. I think it was red meat for their base. Um, And it was something that was a political decision. And, you know, of course they went back and they adjusted it to make it look a little less like a Muslim ban, but it was, you know, uh, there was no way that that was going to work constitutionally. I I have to believe that some lawyers said that's not going to work. Um, and the courts are going to stop that, but they did it anyway. Um, and I think it was, it was with the Trump base, it was good press. I think for the Trump base, it's, it made it sound like he was doing what it was that he said he was going to do. And that's what, what all presidents want to do is, is at the very least, make it look like they are committed to the ideals that they campaigned on. And I think that's what Biden is saying. He's just being, you know, unusually transparent. I think all we can go Obama, Clinton, Bush, both Bushes, I think they've all done it. Well, Zed, you know, one other thing that comes to mind is remember Obama had said for years that he couldn't uh, offer any sort of reprieve or amnesty to broad groups of illegal immigrants in the United States. He said he kept telling crowds. I remember at one town hall, he was asked about this. Why couldn't he just basically say that people who are in the United States illegally can stay. And he's like, I just can't do that. That's not the way our country's laws work. The president can't do that. And then eventually he did actually create um, two categories, both DAPA and DACA designed to keep illegal immigrants in the United States. And we still have 
DACA today, and we're, it's being battled uh, about all the time. Um, so there is a track record here of, of presidents both acknowledging at first that they're not even allowed to do it and then just doing it anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think it also like calls into question like what we think of when we say something's unconstitutional. I mean, obviously, like the Supreme Court ideally is not supposed to be a politicized institution, right? It's not supposed to be above politics. But at the end of the day, like what's un- unconstitutional changes constantly. Like one, one example that comes to mind is um, school prayer. Uh, for the first, like, I don't know, 150 years of American history or, you know, around, around that time, um, you know, it was fairly common to have prayer in schools and no, no court, you know, we had a Supreme Court, you know, since the early days of the, of the country, no, no courts had ever ruled that this was unconstitutional, that this uh, it was the same thing as state endorsement of religion, blah, blah, blah. But when, once you hit the mid 20th century, courts started ruling that way and eventually the Supreme Court ruled that way. Um, that you know, having prayer in schools was was equivalent to a state sponsorship of religion, and there therefore was um, unconstitutional. Now, I think during that period of time, the Constitution wasn't rewritten. What what happened was that the political environment changed, right? And the the political the politics does impact the judges, and it does impact the courts. And I think that you know a lot of that, a, a lot of what we end up seeing uh, fights about constitutionality end up being the result of political disputes. Um, and I think that most politicians, maybe not all, I mean, there's probably some who are real sticklers about this, but most of them, I think, are, are fairly flexible or fluid in terms of what they de- they would determine will be valid or, or allowed by the courts in terms of what they're doing. And, you know, the, the other thing is that courts often take a very long time to rule on the constitutionality of things, particularly when it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. So, you know, it's, it's a matter of Obama could say that for a long time, and then he could do that to, in the tail end of his presidency. Um, and not really have to face the repercussions for it because, you know, it's not something that that would be ruled on for, for quite some time anyway. Yeah, Basically. I mean, my, my, my understanding uh, with, with DACA, and of course, we know DAPA, DAPA didn't make, you know, pass the muster, but I know that with DACA, his thing was, I can't do this. I mean, he said it even when he signed it, that I can't do this uh, permanently, that it's a temporary fix for Congress to go to work. Uh, unfortunately, Congress has still not gone to work on the issue. Um, so I think Obama was uh, acting uh, in a temporary fashion, again, buying himself some time. And he was very, again, pretty transparent about that, um, even when he signed it, that this was not a long-term fix. This was temporary. Mm. Um, and hopefully to compel Congress to act, and they didn't do that. Um as far as, you know, I think the, the school prayer example is a, is a, a good one. Um, and But I would also say that when it comes to uh, the constitutionality of a lot of uh, laws and we think of courts as being kind of above that, I mean, it is a, politi- it is a political process uh, that gives us our judges. So for us to act like the judicial branch is apolitical, you know, doesn't really make sense to me. I mean, this is why you have so-called conservative judges and so-called liberal judges. This is why one of the reasons why the presidency is so coveted is because they choose judges and, you know, based on their political ideology and their political ideology uh, matching their judicial philosophy. So, you know, I, I don't think we should play games and pretend that that you, the judicial wing is not political. It's absolutely mm-hmm. political. 
but you, it is you know, you, go ahead so. i agree with i agree with you jason i um i do think that there is an ability to be dispassionate that exists in in human beings there is an ability to to look at the rules and then look back at the application and, and determine, even if it doesn't fit your political outcomes, yeah, this is what the rule book says, in this case, the constitution or the laws. And we've seen plenty of judges who've done that. This is a, this is a real skill that humans can accomplish. But I don't, I, I don't disagree with you at all that the courts um, have uh, deep political influences within them on the basis of the judges themselves and what they believe in, what their politics are, and who nominated them and who picked them, those are entirely reasonable. And, and why I'm appreciative every time I read a news story about a judicial decision that indicates which president actually nominated them. Like what was, you know, who was the president behind that? I think that's a relevant piece of information because it colors your perception of, okay, maybe politics did play a role in this judgment. Go ahead, Zed. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I would agree with you that there are definitely examples of judges i think maybe who come from a conservative bent to rule in a more liberal way or who come from a liberal bent to rule in a more conservative way because they are attached to some kind of principle um, but at the same time there's a reason why like every supreme court nominee is extremely controversial right. these days and you know parties are trying to block each other's nominees and scandalize them and so on and so forth because they know that if that person reaches the the bench that it'll change the ideological nature of the supreme court right uh, and sometimes that's overstated. Like, I think that Democrats always say that it's going to be the end of Roe v. Wade if the, um, you know, the, if Amy Coney Barrett makes it on there, if Kavanaugh makes it on there, if Gorsuch makes it on there. And the court's recent rulings on abortion suggest that they're not necessarily, not even all the conservative judges are necessarily hardliners um, when it comes to that issue uh, in terms of how they interpret, you know, the, the Constitution and the law. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's something right. I, I would have to advance. Like it's, it's something that you have, you have, you have to, we have to recognize there's like a lot of politics caught up in this. And I think yeah. ultimately that's why Biden did make this decision is because he felt like he was getting a lot of political uproar in the press and among progressive wing of his party. And he did, and as much as he kept saying that he didn't think he had the power to do this, he understands that legally you can do anything as a president and eventually the court might stop you. And that might be what happens in a month or two. Um, but if it's politically beneficial and it, you know, he does see an actual problem given that the money that they allocated for this was just trickled out extremely slowly. Right. Um, then I think he decided to do it. So let's, let's switch gears to another topic here. We've got mayor Bill de Blasio of New York city this week, making a pretty big announcement, becoming the first city in the country to mandate uh, a vaccine uh, documentation or what, what some have called vaccine passports uh, in order to use businesses in New York City, namely dining establishments, gyms, and shows. Um, in other words, the effect of this is to banish people who are unvaccinated from using any of those businesses within New York City. Now, this, this to me is a pretty aggressive step for uh, any lawmaker or leader to take in any city in the country, Bill de Blasio, the first to take it. Uh, Jason, why don't, uh, why don't you jump in here and uh, give us your reaction first? Because we just heard from Zed. What do you, what do you think? <laughs> well, Bill de Blasio, everybody's favorite mayor. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll tell you this. I, I think uh, de Blasio, if you talk to people in New York City, uh, one of the things that unites uh, 
New Yorkers of all political backgrounds and strains is their distaste for Bill de Blasio. Um, I mean, he, he has a he has a few people that like him, and, and he had the audacity to run for president, which I kind of like, actually. I think, you know, <laughs> a guy who says, screw if people like me, I have goals, you know, and I'm going to do what I want and, and see what happens. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, I think there's a couple of things. I understand his intention. You know, of course, uh, you know, New York was hit really hard by COVID, particularly New York City. Um, it's different than other places, you know, it's different than California or Florida, even or Texas, where a lot of what goes on can be outdoors, you have a lot more space, where you know, whereas New York, literally people live on top of each other, you can have 100,000 people in a five block radius. Um, and so that was just ripe uh, for the virus. And I understand the desire to kind of pull the trigger really quickly. But right now, I don't think New York is a place, um, last I checked, it was not a hotspot for the Delta variant. It is not a place where people are getting uh, sick and, um, you know, where hospitalizations are out of control. It's not Florida. It's not uh, Missouri. It's not Alabama. Um, I think, you know, one of the things our Republican governor, I'm in the state of Maryland, and, and our Republican governor has basically said, look, you know, I encourage people to get vaccinated. I encourage people to do what they can, but we're not going to, you know, we don't need mask mandates just yet. We don't need all of these things. We don't need to be alarmist um, right now because we are not one of the hotspots. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's no indication that we're going to end up being in the hotspots. And, and I think you and I, one of the places you and I, Vince, agree is that, you know, we need to follow the science. Everybody, you know, on my side of the aisle talks science, 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 follow the science. <clears throat> and I'm 100% with that. I don't think the science says at this point in time that New York City uh, is a dangerous place. Now, if you start getting an indication that it is, yeah, and you start seeing those, it doesn't even have to be at capacity. If you start seeing it tick up, I understand, uh, you know, taking desperate measures because of the way New York City is set up. But right now, uh, I just think that it's it's a little early. I think that uh, de Blasio needs to, you know, chill out a little bit. These vaccine mandates, Zed, <laughs> I mean, regardless of obviously Jason's talking about the level of spread and the intensity. Uh, are there problems here with uh creating basically two different classes of people, two different categories of people who are allowed to engage in business, regardless of the level of spread. Yeah, I mean, just to speak to what Jason was bringing up, like, it is true that New York City was hit very hard early on in the pandemic. And I'm sure that had an impact on de Blasio and how he thinks about these things, right? He's probably thinking back to March of 2020, April 2020, and thinking about the the severe impact it had on the, the healthcare system, the schools, so on and so forth, as he shut them down, and so on and so forth. So I understand why he kind of is jumping to this conclusion. Also, as Jason said, you know, New York, New York City is not necessarily a massive hotspot for COVID right now, the same way, you know, your Missouri's or Arkansas's or Alabama's are. Uh, but perhaps he thinks it's a, a prophylactic type measure, right? It's something that could prevent it from becoming a hotspot. Um, my question is, is like, how exactly will New Yorkers respond to this? Uh, because really no large city in America has taken this kind of measure yet. I don't think any large city has, has issued a citywide passport that covers such a large group of, 
of sort of institutions, meaning like restaurants and gyms in particular, you know, places where people are regularly frequenting, um, because it's possible that it just, it doesn't do a whole lot to encourage a lot of those people to take vaccines because they will, you know, th th those people are not necessarily thinking that, you know, it's not necessarily a matter of convenience for those people. It's more of a matter of like, uh, you know, I think if you're if you're more of a rigid opponent to to taking a vaccine, it's probably not going to affect you very much because you're just going to skip those things anyway. They're not really mandatory for you. Uh, it may induce some people who are just putting it off, like someone who's just thinking, oh, I, you know, I want, I, you know, I want to get it, but I'm also like 23 years old and, you know, I'm pretty healthy. So, I, you know, I might get it next month or something. They might think, oh, well, I want to go out to a pizza place with my friends, so I better just go ahead and get it. Uh, it might be effective for that. But yeah, I do think it is. It does. I think anytime the government imposes some kind of restriction on anyone's freedom, they have to justify it. Right. And I think that maybe if de Blasio had laid out some specific, you know, triggers, he'd said, OK, if we reach this certain level in the city, I'm going to impose a mandate yeah. for, you know, a certain number of weeks until it drops again. Then maybe it would have I think it would have maybe faced less public opposition. But I think right now it is going to cause some disconcern because people will have exactly the concern you brought up, Vince, that it's like segregating their society into two different batches of people. And we do know that vaccination rates in New York City tend to be lower outside of basically Manhattan, right? Like in the Bronx, it's lower and parts of Brooklyn, it's lower and Queens is lower. Um, so, you you know, some of the the existing inequities in New York City will maybe be exacerbated by this, right? You're locking out some of the, the people in certain neighborhoods from being able to have access to these things. Uh, I think that's going to look kind of bad in New York. And I think that will that will be galling to a lot of people. Um, and it's certainly not the measure I would jump to at this point um, versus some of the other things governors are right. doing to encourage people like financial incentives and so on and so forth. Yeah, I don't think the point you just made has been appreciated that much in the press in the last 24 hours, or at least not acknowledged. I mean, if you do look at New York City uh, demographic data for vaccinations, what you find is that among uh, white New Yorkers, 48 percent are vaccinated. Hispanic New Yorkers, 48 percent are vaccinated, uh, uh, much higher among uh, Asian New Yorkers. But among black New Yorkers, it's just, I think, 35 percent. So nearly around a third of black New Yorkers. So the impact here for, I mean, there are, there's a lot that's, especially on the American left where disparate impact is itself evidence of systemic racism. I mean, that's the kind of thing like de Blasio just kicked the hornet's nest. Uh, I guess it only, but it, it'll only be that way if the media notices. Jason, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, well, first of all, when it comes to um, vaccine hesitancy amongst, you know, African-Americans, um, and, and some Latino groups in some places. Um, I think that there is a way to market things and, you know, it's carrots and sticks, kind of like what Zed said. You know, I, I think that you give people incentives, you actually go out and market it and tell them that it's safe and that it's actually going to be better for their health. When you go to New York City, you know, my family's originally from New York City. When you go in those places, and you talk to people, a lot of people know someone who has died of COVID, you know, and I think you can actually talk to those people and say, how many people have you known that have died of COVID? And then ask them, how many people do you know that have died from the vaccine? And, and I think you can actually start to talk sense into people into uh, considering the vaccine. Um, some people are just not going to do it. You know, they, they don't want a needle that comes from the government and I, you know, one can understand why that is, um, you know, and, and I, I've talked to friends of mine, 
you know, who are vaccine hesitant. And I'm like, look, you know, I'm like, bro, you really think the government is going to, in order to kill you, you know, working class black person, they're going to kill a bunch of wealthy white folks, you know, simultaneously, they're going to be the, the, the collateral damage. You think that's how this works? That's not how it works. There are many other ways that the government is trying to kill you, but that's not it. Um, and, you know, I tried to, you know, I've tried, I've had these conversations with some of my friends. Um, some cases, it, it, you know, it may sway them a little bit. In some cases, right. they're pretty steadfast. But I think that there are ways that you can actually market this, particularly in New York City, when you have access to every influential person, you're right. the mayor of New York City, you can get at every influential doctor, every influential celebrity, and get them to actually uh, encourage people to get vaccinated. Jason, I think that there are ways Jason, to go about that. Jason, is one of those ways, though, to punish them? I mean, I guess what de Blasio is doing is banishing anybody who doesn't get the vaccine from restaurants, from gyms, and from shows. Is that compelling? Well, the, the thing that worries me most about that, and I was really, really glad that Zay brought this point up. Uh, the thing that really worries me about that is how does that work in terms of employment? You know, so people who want to go to work, you know, at some of those jobs, which are working class jobs and restaurants and, yep. and bars and, and things like that, are they going to be locked out of their jobs because they're not vaccinated, um, even if they're willing to mask up, which I think, you know, the the alternative to vaccination should be masking, you know what I mean? Um, and I'm not exactly sure. I have to go back and look and see, or maybe one of you can tell me how the New York Yeah, they would be. Works. They'd be banned, the workers and, and customers. So are they are they allowed to use masks as an as an alternative, though? If they're not vaccinated, they have to get vaccinated. You know, um, is there like you have to vaccinate or you have to wear a mask? um at all times which you know if that's the case you know I, I think that that changes things a little bit um if you if the policy is which the policy on a lot of like uh college campuses and other places mm -hmm. is if you're not vaccinated you must wear a mask at all times you know the only people that get to go freely without masks indoors are people who are vaccinated um, so if that's the policy, I think it's a little bit different. I think that changes things a little bit. Um, but I, I'm scared about these people from the outer boroughs who get locked out of employment um, because of this vaccine uh, policy. And I think that there are ways that Bill de Blasio can encourage people to get vaccinated, get those vaccination rates up um, without, without this policy. And right now, I think it's a little alarmist. I think that you know, right now, New York is doing relatively well. Yeah. And, you know, the, the good the, the new the good news is also that I think that there is now a kind of a growing concern about uh, cases of COVID rising and deaths have not really, you know, are not really rising in a huge way compared to what they were last year. But cases are rising. And I think people do pay attention to that, like in Alabama, which I think is, you know, fifth or sixth worst uh, cases in America right now. The first dose of the vaccine, I think they jumped like 62% week over week, right? Like more people are getting vaccinated in response to this. It might be lagging a little bit because not everyone's, you know, addicted to the news and, you know, following this every single day, but the word does get around. And I think that because we've seen an increase, particularly in those territories, like your Louisiana, your, your Alabama, 
some of the southern states. And, you know, you even had I think there was even a lawmaker who came out today or yesterday uh, talking about how her her husband had passed away last year because of covid or before the vaccines were out because of covid. And, you know, she really, really wished that he had access to that vaccine. And I think stories like that um, that come from in groups, you know, people that you identify with are really, really helpful. And I think that government measures towards people who are already kind of skeptical may end up antagonizing them, right? And they may make it even more like they feel like they're being forced, something's being forced on them. Um, whereas we're actually seeing rising rates of vaccination, it seems just like from the outreach efforts that a lot of these southern states are doing, and just from the press coverage of the cases themselves. So it might not be the most satisfying thing just to say, well, we have to keep like, you know, arguing to people, or we have to keep like trying to persuade them or convince them. Uh, but over time, it does seem to be working to increase numbers. And we, we should also be realistic that we're not going to, I don't think we're going to make this virus disappear altogether, right? I think it'll probably be closer to the flu where like, you know, there's different versions of it. We have updated vaccines. We take some measures, particularly during heavy seasons, just to like, you know, try to be safe, wash our hands, keep some distance, uh, get vaccinated when you can. Um, but I don't think it's realistic for us to say this is going to go the way of smallpox and we're just going to eliminate it, right? Because it just it spreads too quickly. Uh, it's going to keep mutating the same way the flu does. Um, and I think the best that we can do is just try to uh, have some heightened awareness about it and uh, really good, I think, availability of vaccines and updates of vaccines when that's necessary. Yeah, I just checked, uh, Jason, to your question from before about Bill de Blasio. I just wanted to make sure we circle back on that. Uh, it does mandate both uh, uh, customers and workers get vaccinated. Uh, additionally, city officials, the New York Times reporting, said that inspectors from the health department and other agencies would enforce these new rules and it will require workers and patrons to have received at least one dose of the vaccine and that restaurants could face fines. Um, you're getting some outrage from some of the uh, groups that represent restaurants in the city and uh, other hospitality workers. Uh, Melissa Fleischett is the president of the New York State Restaurant Association and saying, quote, these new mandates are a burden that will be placed on hospitality staff that is already stretched thin, and this will only get worse. Government is still making things harder on our industry. We can't take it much longer. You know, one, one of the things that kind of worries me um, is, you know, I know there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy among people who are undocumented. And a lot of those undocumented people, or even if they are documented and legal immigrants, I think like there's probably some vaccine he hesitancy there, uh, but particularly with the undocumented population. And those are the people who work as barbacks and, and you know, also as some of those uh, those positions and those and those jobs. I wonder what happens there. You know what I mean? Like what, what's going to happen to those people? Uh, when they lose jobs and they're not eligible for a lot of the government assistance that's out there, the rental assistance. Um, you know, I, I don't know if they may be eligible for rental assistance, but they're not eligible for some of the other government protections that we have for Americans. Um, and, I, and, you know, it, it concerns me a little bit. Um, you know, we, we even documented or undocumented, we don't want to create, you know, more of an underclass in America's major cities um, and not allowing them yeah. you know, to work. So that, that concerns me. I think that that's something on the left that, that should be addressed, uh, that people should talk about with, um, I understand everyone's fear of the vaccine. I, uh, I will say this, you know, to, to Zaid's point or Zed's point, I'm sorry. Uh, I agree with him that 
you know, we're not going to stop COVID. You know, I think I was reading something today that said, like, COVID's not going away. You know what I mean? It's we had an opportunity to do it. We didn't do it. COVID's going to be here to stay. But one of the things that happens with vaccines and I had to, you know, I pointed this out and, you know, I know there was some on the left who who saw my tweet and were like, oh, I don't like that you tweeted that. But um, vac- or, uh, viruses usually either stay the same or get weaker. They very rarely get stronger with mutations, you know. Um, so the goal is that, you know, though we're not getting rid of COVID, that as it mutates, that some of these are going to turn into the sniffles. Um, it's not going to be something that requires hospitalization, that you know we can block some of these uh, major strains, and then it you know as it mutates, it will get weaker. Um, the problem with the Delta variant and a lot of other things is what happens when they mutate is that these viruses. Uh, find a way to replicate quickly within the cells, you know, more quickly than the original strain. So therefore, you know, uh, with that quick replication, it makes them, uh, makes it easier to transmit, you know, to other people. So the transmission Mm -hmm. rate goes up. Um, So there's, there's a lot of understanding that, you know, scientific understanding that we need to get about COVID, I think COVID uh, is always going to be there. It's going to be one of those things. We're not going to get rid of it like we mostly did for the measles or polio or, you know, some of these other things where vaccinations completely wiped it out. And it's interesting how so many Americans are, were pro those vaccines, which actually injected you with a small amount of the disease (laughs) rather than this vaccine, which doesn't do that. You know what I mean? I don't know if it's a misunderstanding that people have, uh, but for some reason, people, those vaccines aren't quite as controversial. Of course, you have an anti-vax community, but those vaccines aren't as controversial when they're injecting you with the disease versus something uh, like this, which doesn't inject you with the disease. Um, I guess it's that Bill Bill Gates microchip that they're putting in people that's scaring people. (laughs) <laughs> that's a joke by uh, the way <laughs> so you didn't have to say that i think they yeah. got it smart audience no, I, um, I, I don't know i, I want to be clear i know, <laughs> we, have to I know. Do it for, we have to do it for social media so that you don't get banned so. that's right, right that's exactly, exactly right exactly. take care Man, of everybody here youtube to take us down <laughs> let's uh let's talk about more about politics and the way it's impacting the world uh and specifically uh, what is going on with the battle for control of the united states house of representatives um, we get a, some big pieces of news. Uh, one of them out of Ohio last night, progressive activist Nita Turner, former top aide to Senator Bernie Sanders, losing to Chantel Brown uh, in the bid to represent Ohio's 11th congressional district. Uh, additionally, we saw the DCCC, which is the House Campaign Committee, um, come out with a report this week published in Politico. They, they've been doing some polling, and what they've discovered is that if the election were held today, Democrats would lose control of the House. The weakness in terms of Democrat messaging, according to their own polling, is on the economy. Um, And right now, Democrats hold a three-seat advantage over Republicans in the United States House. Uh, Zed, what do you think the the events here of the last, especially 24 hours, tell us? Is there anything we can read out of that Ohio House race with Nina Turner's loss and uh, the DCCC's concerns about 
what the polling says for their future. Yeah, I mean, the DCCC, I mean, you have to understand, it's also like a permanent campaign arm, right? So they they need to be able to motivate their donors and, yeah. and the constituents like constantly. And so it may not be necessarily, you know, a fi- five alarm fire kind of thing, but it is, you know, I historically there is a backlash against an incumbent president in the midterms. Um, so I w- I'm not saying all their polling is fake or all their messaging is fake about this. Uh, there probably is some real concern to be had, but I think they also they need to motivate people to be involved with their organization, to be recruiting the best candidates and giving money. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it, it, may be, it may be something being read too much into. Uh, I do think that the Ohio uh, special election is interesting because it was sort of, uh, you know, we all thought we had left 2016 behind us with Clinton versus Bernie Sanders. Um, but it was kind of a replay of that again, right? Uh, you had Bernie Sanders supporting one candidate. You had Hillary Clinton actually coming out publicly supporting the other candidate who won. And you had uh, many of their proxies kind of getting in and supporting either side. Jim Clyburn was on the on the more establishment side. Uh, AOC was on the other side and Cornell West and all of Bernie's gang. And eventually you saw the establishment side won, win. It wasn't a, a huge blowout or anything, but it was also a sizable victory to where it wasn't close. And I think it was really interesting because something that you saw in this primary was that Nina Turner's past criticisms of people like Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, I think really became radioactive for her because this was a district where if you go back and look at who they voted for in presidential primaries, they were fairly pro-Biden and they were fairly pro-Clinton. I think this is something, honestly, that people on the right side of the aisle will are also learning in that, you know, you have, for instance, in the same state, Ohio, you have J.D. Vance running for Senate. And he's taken some heat for reversing some of his past criticisms of Trump. But like, that's kind of what you have to do in these party primaries. You can't be seen as someone who's against your like party leader. And I think Nina Turner was seen as against her party leader in some ways. Uh, she had made some quite caustic comments about him in the in the past year during the primary and maybe even after that, uh, that I think kind of dragged her down quite a bit. I think that Democratic Primary voters tend to like their leaders, just like Republican primary voters tend to like Trump. So, you know, unfortunately for her, I think that kind of weighed her down. Jason, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. No, my curious, I want to see how much your your assessment lines up with with Zed's, because um, is it was it driven by uh, that that sort of like don't attack the popular person in the party, um, uh, you know, basically personality politics or was this an indictment in any way of um of nina turner's politics herself like her policies it was this a knock against progressives i think it was a little of both but i i tend to to think this was more of what zed was saying um i think nina turner um again was seen as somebody who was who was against uh biden and against i think would really hurt her particularly in cuyahoga county which is basically cleveland um you know among some african-american voters african-american women uh and shaved off just just enough was that she was seen as against um the first african-american vice president uh i think who's who's also you know we're talking about a black woman here and I think that that also uh, hurt her amongst some moderate African Americans. African Americans are are more conservative than people understand, and I think that you know older African American women saw her as somebody who wasn't playing with the team. 
Um, I, I think some of this had to do with, you know, I think it was a, a, a perfect storm of issues that hurt Nina Turner. Number one, I think she's seen as a national figure sometimes and not as a local one. Mm -hmm. uh, she's on the national news and there and, you know, sometimes lo local residents resent that. You know, I think sometimes when they see you on the national news all the time, you know, the other person can can play that as you're not concerned with Cuyahoga County. You're not concerned with Ohio 11. You know, you're you're out there with Bernie going around the country. Um, I think there's probably a small amount of that. I think this was, uh, you know, a reminder that Ohio was still the Rust Belt and the Rust Belt is usually filled with moderate Democrats. Mm -hmm. So I think. Um, even though, you know, Bernie in 2016 had some success in, in, in the Rust Belt during the, the primaries, you know, in places like, um, I don't know if he did OK in Ohio, but he certainly did OK in Michigan and other parts of the Rust Belt. I think the Rust Belt, again, uh, really lined up with Joe Biden. And I think, you know, we saw that play out. Right. Um, and I think Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, this was certainly one thing I can tell you, this was not about Chantel Brown, uh, councilwoman and congresswoman-elect. Well, I guess she's not congresswoman-elect yet, but- She's virtually council congresswoman-elect. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, councilwoman um, Chantel Brown, this was not about her. This mm -hmm. That's one thing I think we can all agree on. This had nothing to do with her. Um, and it's funny to watch the establishment Democrats sit there and paint her like she was some sort of underdog that came back with being all scrappy. And yeah. it's like, no, that's not what happened. Like she, well, you're how not big, an underdog when you get a Hillary Clinton endorsement. I Hillary mean, Clinton, if she endorsed our show, we would get a million viewers <laughs> like, and, and lose all of our daily caller viewers. We get some name ID. That'd be, that'd be critical. Um, uh, Zed, I don't know. There's the other part of this is not just obviously attacking people within your own party, especially popular people, but the, the actual policies here. You mentioned Jim Clyburn, and I think that he entered the race at an interesting time in terms of his endorsement of Chantel Brown. The reason for that being that he's been opposed to the efforts that Nina Turner's been supportive of, uh, namely wrapped up in a slogan called defund the police. Turner's tried to explain her position on that, saying that we shouldn't accept policing as it exists now. We should be open to changing it. But it was enough, of course, that uh, it stuck with her. And that was the impression that voters seem to have think seem to have of her. And James Clyburn, one of the things he's been saying is that these types of slogans are deeply damaging to Democrats and their electoral chances. And we have to recognize who the electorate is and what they actually want. Yeah, I mean, I think Clyburn has been someone who's been more frustrated with the progressive wing of the party. I remember before defund the police was a controversy. There was a controversy about abolish abolishing ICE which yeah. uh, became a GOP kind of uh, slogan or talking point uh, that the Democrats are all embracing abolish ICE. And I remember I asked him about it. I asked Clyburn in the Capitol about it when that was all going on. And he was just like, he thought it was the craziest thing in the world. Like, you know, he just completely dismissed it out of hand. And I think that he's been frustrated with people who are kind of getting into that sloganeering politics and kind of pushing Democrats to embrace those things, even when they're like very unpopular in some of the competitive districts they need. And so I think, yeah, Clyburn, he doesn't strike me as someone who, you know, Clinton had a very clear incentive to get into this race, I think, because she saw Anita Turner as a key Bernie Sanders surrogate. Clintons are notoriously like kind of 
provincial and they're they're very you know they have their they have their political enemies and i think she had that incentive but i think with Clyburn, you're right i think Clyburn sees this as a party direction kind of thing right he understands that the more the left wing of the party picks up those kind of seats and sets that direction the harder it is for him to kind of maintain the the narrative and the, and, and the, the leadership that he wants in terms of where the party needs to go so i think that's I think that is a big part of the reason he gets involved in races like this. And I, and if you'll notice that actually the entire CBC, the Congressional Black Caucus, got involved on Chantel Brown's side because I think they also have a kind of a similar uh, worry about kind of the effect on their caucus and the direction that it goes. Um, I don't necessarily know that voters were thinking as ideologically. I think voters in these Democratic primaries are often very driven by like their local connections and who they feel comfortable with. And I think you know, again, as as Jason was saying, like Chantel was in many ways seen as a more local figure who was not necessarily dabbling in national politics or in big party debates, but who was like a reliable and accessible voice. Um, but I do think that at, at some level, the party itself and the institutions do see that ideological struggle going on, and they, they've clearly taken one position over another. Jason, final thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I just want to... Um go back to the idea about uh, Democrats and the fact that, you know, they hold a very slim margin in the House. Um, I would say that uh, while that's true, and I think, honestly, you know, if I'm giving an honest assessment, I think Republicans will more than than likely take the House back. Um, And, you know, for for the reasons that, that Zed stated, that's what happens in the first term of a new administration usually the house flips and when you have such a small uh majority um i think that's probably what's going to happen but what you won't see is you know the bleed out that you saw with obama's first term or the bleed out that you saw with trump's first term where he lost 40 seats i don't think it's going to be that dramatic i think republicans may get uh you know uh five, six, seven, eight seat lead, you know, they may get, you know, gain 10 or 11 seats. Um, And I think that that's where you're going to get that slim majority um, for uh, Kevin McCarthy and for the Republicans. But I I don't, I don't think it's going to be the big bleed out, you know, that we saw that we've seen in the last two presidential um, administrations at the beginning, you know, which is usually what happens. And I think, while the economy is a concern, um, and particularly since we're, you know, if we if we head towards stagflation, you know, then it's going to really, then it could be really bad for Democrats. But if we avoid that the way Jerome Powell and others are, are talking about, I think Biden's going to be in a, and the Democrats are going to be in a decent position uh, where they at the very least can block Republicans and and, you know, can maybe sway some, you know, some Republicans to come over and actually win some votes. Um, I think that's in a much better position. It's going to depend upon where our economy goes uh, this fall and moving forward. Um, And, you know, last thing about Ohio, uh, Ohio 11. um, I think that one of the things, I think there are things that progressives can learn from um, from Nina Turner's loss. Um, it's not just because you're popular or well-known. 
Um, you have to have those local connections. That's what you see with someone like a Corey Bush or some of the other progressives that we've seen. People in St. Louis know of Corey Bush. Um, and I think that's why you, you know, she got elected. She wasn't a national figure until after her election. I think, you know, they thought Nina Turner's a popular person nationwide and she'll come through and just kind of run through this. And I thought that was going to happen. But I think people under progressives underestimated uh, the desire to stop the Bernie wing um, and, you know, what was going to go into uh, Chantel Brown's, uh, you know, campaign and, and how the big names that were going to come out to stop Nina Turner. And they were successful this time. Uh, Zed Jelani, uh, before we let you go, and first of all, we, we extend to you our gratitude for being a part of this. Um, yes. Tell us more about your website, inquiremore.com. Yeah, so this is Inquire More is a uh, substack basically that I started with my friend, Sean Misrobian. Uh, Sean's in like an old line kind of Democratic consultant. He's He worked for the Obama campaign back in the day in 2008. He's worked in several kind of similar arrangements since. Uh, basically what we do is we try to offer uh, analysis and reporting uh, and the kind of like an undercurrents of the news, stuff that you maybe aren't seeing elsewhere, cover a lot of research. Uh, we, we follow up on stories that, you, that you're generally not going to be, you know, see featured on MSNBC or CNN or major cable news. Um, and I think a lot of it is based on like pushing back on media narratives that we think are, are flawed or incomplete. And, and just like giving a giving, you know, an alternative view, I think on a lot of current affairs topics. So yeah, inquiremore.com is the, is the sub stack. And, you know, you can subscribe for free, uh, which will get you most of the posts, but we also do have a few posts behind for, for paying subscribers as well. Yeah, right on. Uh, Zed Jelani, thank you so much. Really appreciate your reporting all the time and, and your help today uh, on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Thank you, sir. Thank you, guys. And uh, you'd like to be a part of this, Jason, how can people sign up for it here, uh, our, our podcast? Well, you can subscribe anywhere podcasts are found. You can watch us on YouTube and uh, subscribe there. You can subscribe or watch us on Facebook. Watch every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We're going to have incredible guests like uh, Zed Jelani and many others uh, that are going to come on our show so we can get a balanced view of everything definitely check out Zed's website, Inform More. Inquire. Inquire, inquire more. more. I'm sorry. Inquire <laughs> More, uh, which we all need to do. And you can inquire more right here on Vincent Jason Save the Nation through the Daily Caller, also on Facebook, YouTube, and anywhere podcasts are found every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Peace out.